Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand in your life that made an impact on you? Hot Wheels. I was a big, uh, I was a huge Hot Wheels fan as a kid. Uh, and in the you know early 80s, they didn't heavily market Hot Wheels to boys. They also included girls in their ads. And so I was not embarrassed to ask for one. Uh, I remember when I was six years old, I wanted Hot Wheels City more than ever. And some of your listeners might remember what that is. In fact, I still have them. Uh, and I kept them all this year. So that was the brand I loved the most as a young kid. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Andrea Mallard, Chief Marketing Officer of Pinterest, an 11-year-old company whose purpose is to bring to everyone the inspiration to create a life they love. Pinterest went public in April 2019, shortly after Andrea became Pinterest's first CMO. And now the fast-growing company has 400 million people coming to the platform every month with an astounding market cap of $44 billion. This is Andrea's third stint as CMO, first at the digital healthcare company Omada Health, then at the hot brand Athleta, now Pinterest. Her career, like mine, began as a journalist. She worked out of Toronto and London before joining the iconic design firm IDEO for seven years. Andrea serves on the board of advisors for Unu Motors, a European electric scooter company, and for one year in her life, she read 150 books. This is my conversation with Andrea Mallard. Welcome, Andrea, to the CMO podcast. We are in a new year, and you are in the inspiration business at Pinterest. So I want to hear what's inspiring you personally and professionally as we roll into 2021. Well, what's interesting is at the absolute height of COVID, the first time, you know, in March of 2020, um, we decided to do a bit of a deep dive to find out what were Pinterest users doing? How were they reacting to COVID? How was that changing their behavior? And what inspired me so much at the time was how many pinners, as we like to call them, were actually searching for things to help. In other words, how do I help first responders? How do I thank my child's teacher? How do I um, how do I cook meals for my pantry? Whatever it might be, you know, things that they could do to be helpful in this moment. And I tried to hold on to that idea throughout 2020. Uh, and as I move into 2021, um, that's really top of mind for me, which is in spite of what you see in the news most of the time, actually in general, people are really, really good and people really want to help. And if we can tap into that somehow, a little bit more as a brand, certainly in me as a leader, reminding myself that in general, people are trying to help. And how can I as a marketer, certainly as a leader within Pinterest, harness that a little bit better and make sure that that gets some time in the sun? Because I think the only thing we've heard recently is the absolute opposite and that anyone could be forgiven for becoming cynical as a result. So that's what's really inspiring me is the idea of 
What might the Roaring Twenties look like? And how could the spirit of positivity and constructive involvement look like? And how do we give more room for those voices in the world? How about um, any new habits, practices that you picked up? You've been there about two years. I know you've renovated a house. I know your daughter loves to bake. <laughs> That's right. You know, I have a resolution this year to get outside more. So I'm paddle boarding later today. You know, is there anything that you're doing that, uh, that kind of has inspired you from your, uh, from your pinners or from your family? Yes. Well, so what's, what's interesting, there's a few things. One is, yes, I had to renovate my, my entire house. And it's not a happy story. It's not because I wanted to add a new wing to the house. It's because the foundation was crumbling and there was asbestos in the walls. And, and we had sort of no choice but to try to rehab the house. But what inspired me was realizing, and maybe it's just the age I've gotten to, but I'm trying to figure out what I can do without now. It's not about getting more. Actually, I want less. I want less of everything in my life. And so when we rebuilt our house, um, the question I had my, asked myself was, and and I this came entirely through what I learned on Pinterest, was, you know, look, can, Pinterest has literally billions of humanity's best ideas curated by real humans. And tapping into that, there's a whole groundswell of people who are trying to understand what it means to do far more with less. And so we rebuilt the entire house with the spirit of how do we get rid of as much as possible? How do we simplify our lives? Because they feel very, very complex right now. And how do we quiet the mind a little bit more? So, you know, that meant donating all my children's toys, largely, that were not being played with. That meant getting rid of most of my clothes that were not being worn. Um, Trying to eat more simply, trying to live more simply in general um, has been something that has really helped me as a leader. Um, and the one big habit that I that I started recently, thanks to Pinterest, was beekeeping. Um, that was just something that I realized, first of all, I found it, of course, as most people do on Pinterest, they look for one thing, but then they go on this amazing journey to something else. I was looking to build a retaining wall in the backyard and found out there's a whole bunch of people who keep bees. And I started learning more. And pretty soon now we've got a bunch of hives in the backyard. And and for me, you know, you mentioned paddleboarding as a way. I'm guessing part of paddleboarding is about you quieting your own mind. Yep. It's yep. physically rigorous, but it's mentally, it, you get into a very special zone when you do something like that. And and for me, beekeeping was that. It was, first of all, it was something quiet I could do very easily every afternoon, just sit quietly and watch these amazing insects work. Also learn to care for them. Also learn the role that they played in the ecosystem. And then, yeah, you get the you get the joy of getting some honey out of it and, and getting to really feel like you're connected to nature. So I know that sounds a little bit woo-woo, but that's something I would never have done had, had I not been inspired by some of the ideas uh, outside of the norm wow. on Pinterest. Your platform has 400 million plus people sharing their inspiration, their ideas. What could you tell us about what's inspiring people? What are some of the themes over the last nine months and carrying into this year and what what insights or themes do you think would be helpful for our listeners? And obviously, we have many people who listen who are brand builders and some yes. of the great brands of the world. Yeah, what a great question. You know, so the thing I would tell all your listeners to do is go to PinterestPredicts.com. Because what's so interesting about Pinterest as a platform, and I don't think people realize this, I certainly didn't appreciate it until I worked here, was people don't come to Pinterest to, you know, argue politics. They don't come to Pinterest to share what they had for breakfast yesterday or to, to, to you know make people feel jealous about the yacht that they're currently sitting on, right? That's not what Pinterest is about. Pinterest, people go to Pinterest to plan what they are going to do tomorrow and to get the best ideas for what they intend to do, you know, for themselves. And so we see the future first. Um, And so for the marketers listening, you know, if you go to Pinterest Predicts right now, PinterestPredicts.com, we've 
we've pulled out what we think are the not yet trending trends that are going to be huge in 2021, but they're not huge yet. And if marketers can tap into those 100 trends and see how they apply to their own products or brands, they can take advantage of what we predict is going to be a massive organic upswing in interest and traffic, um, not only on our site and, and on Pinterest, our platform, but but in general in the world. So there's a lot of really interesting trends that we're predicting. Uh, and by the way, of the trends we predicted in 2020, remembering that 2020 was the most unpredictable year you could have had on record, 80% of them still came true. So it just shows the power of our data to be actually fairly robust and predictive. Um, some of the trends that have struck me that have been really interesting, you know, are, and it's something I see in my own uh, daughter's life, for example, I have a teenage daughter, uh, is is this one for, for, I'll do them by generation, you know, for Gen Z, this idea of vibey lights. Now, I know that sounds very, very silly and, you know, maybe obvious, but you know, these kids are making their bedrooms into these really interesting, beautiful lightscapes with all sorts of uh, mood lighting and and really, ex- it's almost like going into a club, you know, and that's something that my own daughter was doing. And and in fact, I think the insight that that underpins that is this idea of kids have been trapped in their bedrooms all year and they want to have a feeling of when they're done with the school day, they get to flip a switch and have something be different and have something change in their bedroom so they can delineate you know, work and life the way that adults are so desperate to do it. So we're seeing all this innovation around products, around lights, vibey mood lighting for children's bedrooms or for teens' bedrooms or for, you know, early 20-somethings bedrooms that we think is going to absolutely explode uh, in the coming year. That's just, you know, one example. Um, And then there's also, you know, a really interesting view towards more, you know, what we call skinimalism. So this idea of people suddenly weren't dressing up for work. They weren't putting on all, all the makeup. And they started realizing, like, I'm tired of doing that, actually. What do I need to do to have a beauty routine, which is not about a five-hour routine in the morning, but actually doing, as I mentioned earlier, the bare minimum and having actually genuinely healthy skin without all this initial makeup. So that skinimalism, again, that that's in the beauty space. But I predict it's going to translate to other areas, this idea of doing way less, uh, way more with far less uh, than ever before. But again, go to PinterestPredicts.com. You'll see 100 different trends that we say are going to be very, very big. And, um, and now's, now's the time to get in on the ground floor. As many people are doing, I'm reading more. But what I'm now doing is I'm lighting a candle at night. Sounds very corny. But I'm just lighting a simple candle with a really interesting scent and just having some peace, reading, nothing on in the background, just quiet reading at a candle. I mean, right. it's, no, it sounds it very sort of 70s, but it's working for me. It, it doesn't. It doesn't sound corny to me at all. In fact, it, it like funny, speaking of Pinterest predicts, that's that's completely in line with what we're seeing is people are trying to get to a place where everything outside our walls feels chaotic um, and and angry and upset. And, and of course, rightfully so in, in most cases. But But we still need to cultivate an inner world that is a bit calmer and a lot slower and reconnect with with simpler things, you know. So I think uh, I, I don't think it's a big surprise that bread baking took off in 2020 at the very apex of the pandemic in March. You just saw insane numbers of people baking bread. That's weird. There was never a shortage of bread. You know, there was never an issue in stores that people couldn't buy bread. There was always plenty. It wasn't a it wasn't the toilet paper of foods. But for me, what I thought that was was actually a, a feeling of needing some control and using one of the most ancient human. Uh, uh, habits of bread baking. You know, we've been doing that for thousands of years, and so many people had this instinct to want to go and make bread at home. Uh, so I, I think that that's your version of it: is lighting a candle and taking a breath. Um, it's it's a little meditation. I think we all need that. Yeah. 
Now, I don't want to get too far into this podcast before going back to your first year in college, which may be about the most interesting first year I have ever witnessed. You, you did not have traditional classes. You entered a program called the Great Books Program through the University of King's College in Halifax, where you read 150 works from 2500 BC to 1960, ranging from the Epic of Gilgamesh to the Second Sex. Tell us about that. What did you learn? How did that help shape you? What, how do you reflect on it now? Wow. No one's ever asked me that before. How amazing. So that was, yes, it was literally called the Great Books Program. And the idea of it was, it was for first year students and you did not take a normal course load of five or six classes. All you did was read these books. And each book, uh, a professor who was a, an absolute world expert on that particular book would talk to you about it for a week. And then you'd move to the next book and the next book and the next book. I mean, included the Bible was in there, for example, just to show you the range. It was really um, amazing. It was certainly the most intellectually grueling year of my life, meaning I, look, I was 19, 20 or 19 years old. And to suddenly wrestle with some of these old texts were amazing and was incredibly difficult. But for me, it was actually just a reminder of the wisdom of the ages. Again, we read you know, we read Dante's Inferno. We read, I mean, we read all of these books that keep showing up in culture over and over in some form or another. Um, and for me, it was just a good reminder that like <laughs> everything old is new again. And we have all this incredible history uh, that you can lean back in and so much wisdom in the past. And and in some cases, I'm, I was amazed at how it moved forward. And in some cases, I was amazed at how we haven't moved forward so much since a particular text was written. But um, you know, like some of the texts I, I, I read way back in the day, uh, like learning about, you know, wars needing to be nasty, brutish and short still show up for me in leadership moments and realizing like, wow, this is how, you know, this, this general led an army into battle, you know, 500 BC is not that different than the business book I'm reading today. That's kind of has a very similar spirit about how you should lead, for instance. So, so yes, it was a great first year. I wouldn't change it, but certainly I've never been as um, overwhelmed or exhausted as I was of just trying to plow through the absolute volume, uh, relentless volume of of work uh, to get through. The only thing close I had to that is I had a Shakespeare course in college where we had to read uh, three plays a week. Wow. And that was heavy. That it's was a heavy. lot. That is a lot. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we had to be ready to talk about a new play. And we went through all the works. Yes. So tell me, is there one book that stands out of, of those 150 that you can think of as particularly relevant to you and defining when you were 19 years old? Wow. You know, gosh, it's been so long since I took that course. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned the Epic of Gilgamesh because that is um, that was the very first book we read uh, because it is the oldest. It's, in fact, it's one of the oldest texts that's still some sort of been preserved. Um, you know, I think uh, that that stuck with me. Obviously, Dante's Inferno stuck with me. And, and the reason it did was because it was such a beautiful sort of rhyming quartet uh, and the way the structure of the words was incredible, but also that, that it had been translated uh, into English, you know, from, from original, I think, it, gosh, I don't even know what language it was originally written in, but the author had made it still rhyme in English and had preserved the basic cadence, the basic meaning of every line. And I actually remember being told about the author of the translation of, of, you know, Dante's Inferno and thinking that amount of dedication and the way that she went about doing it has always stuck with me, which is she had to be such a student of history. And not only that, such a poet herself and such a careful, um, 
uh, you know, curator of this this really seminal piece of work. And so for me, you know, uh, of that text, the thing I remembered more was the craft that went into uh, the translation of it and the preserving of it. Um, so that was a that's something I always think about now when I'm talking about when I when I see things in the modern world where that just have that amount of storytelling craft. I often think about um, the author who preserved, you know, Dante's Inferno for the modern world. Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I want to jump into your career, and you began your career after school as a journalist, and I, I began my career also as a journalist. You worked in Toronto and London. I worked in the Washington, D.C. area. Wow. You pretty quickly flipped from a journalist to the business side. That's right. So tell us why. Well, it's so funny because there's a part of me that always regrets that on some level, but at the time I was doing it was exactly at the height of of the first wave of the internet uh, coming out and sort of the media business model had been radically disrupted. And so for me, I just worried that the, the, the kind of journalist I wanted to be or the kind of writer I wanted to be, that there just wasn't going to be a market for that anymore because I was going and entering these new room, newsrooms and finding out that half the staff was getting laid off the next week or, you know, these magazines that used to be as thick as phone books were now just, you know, a few pages uh, uh, thick. And so for me, I just was worried that the kind of journalist I wanted to be, there wasn't, that wasn't going to be possible anymore, you know? So I think I timed the start of my career a little off. But what's been interesting for me is, is I don't, I still feel like a journalist in many ways. I still feel like my job is to take disparate pieces of information that no one else has connected yet, see if I can connect them, and then obviously weave a great story about them. So a lot of the schools, uh, sorry, the skills I learned as a journalist, I still feel like I lean on them uh, today. And then certainly whenever I meet journalists, there's always a part of me, though, and I don't know if you feel the same. Now you're kind of getting back to your roots, it seems like. But right. I feel a sort of feeling of jealousy. I feel a feeling of like, oh, you know, especially now with what's going on in the world and the need for truth tellers, the need for uh, the people to really chase down what's going on and try to make sense of it. Um, I mean, that's just, I, I can't imagine a more important um, thing to commit oneself to for, for, for your life's work. I mean, I still think uh, uh, it's just such a, it's such a beautiful career. It's such a beautiful craft. I have so much respect for it. It is. And certainly as a journalist, you're asking questions, you're curious, you're following leads, you're interested in someone's life. And that's what we do as leaders. That's right. Yeah. So I think the skills of conversation and dialogue and looking for themes and tying things together, you know, I think those are the most important skills, the more senior we get. And I think journalism gives you a really great background for that. I agree. And you know what's so funny is whenever I find, get a resume from someone who used to be a journalist, I always want to talk to them at minimum. And I invariably hire them too, just because yeah. I think they bring with them that that sensitivity um, and and the instinct to know that the first answer is probably not, is probably incomplete. You got to dig deeper. You got to go a little bit deeper. And that kind of patience and and doggedness, I think, just makes a phenomenal leader as a general rule. So I, I agree with you. Now, I want to flip forward, and you had a lot of interesting years at IDEO, which I don't want to talk about right now. Okay. But you're in your, you were in your third 
and I, I worked with IDEO for many years. Yes, P&G. I remember. Incredible, for, incredible firm. I remember. But but anyway, you're in your third CMO job. Yes. And you're the first ever CMO at Pinterest. And you you have worked as a CMO for three really interesting companies in interesting categories. Yes. So the first one was with Omada Health, which mm-hmm. is a digital health startup. You were the, a CMO there. And then you went to to work at Athleta, which mm-hmm. is a s- extremely hot brand, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, in, in athleisure. And now you're at Pinterest. So you're you're kind of in touch with what people's passions are all around the world. Yeah, consumer tech. So I want you to talk about each one of those CMO jobs, starting with Omada, and maybe give our listeners a bit of background on the company. I want you to tell us one power learning from each of those jobs yeah. that helped prepare you for your next chapter in your life. Sure. So Mata Health is a digital therapeutics company. What that means is uh, it, it was trying to figure out and, and has figured out beautifully, how do you intervene with um, behavioral change, uh, behavioral coaching for people who are right on the brink of a very serious chronic disease? Um, what we've what they knew through research was, look, people who are about to have type 2 diabetes, well, there's this really interesting point ahead of time where you have prediabetes where your body's sending you clear warning signals that if you don't change something, we're about to go over a cliff. And by the way, you can't ever undo that cliff. Once you have type 2 diabetes, now you can control it. You can ameliorate it dramatically, but you never don't have it, you know? And so uh, Almada Health's job is to say, how do we intervene by surrounding someone who's right on the brink of developing uh, either a very serious chronic disease like type 2, for example, one of many, and how do we give them some uh, digital therapies, meaning can we turn your computer screen into a pill effectively? How do I give you a coach, a program, a sort of SaaS-based experience so that we can walk through and monitor and help you break some of these old habits that have been leading to the lifestyle choices that tend to push people towards these kind of diseases? So for me, you know, Omada Health was interesting because I went in very thinking, no problem. I got this. You know, I know this is this was a B to B to C and D to C uh, endeavor. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of stakeholders, and the big learning I had there was you need to know your industry and understanding how the healthcare system works in America is complicated. And I got humbled very quickly in the first few months of the job, realizing that I cannot market this company to all of these disparate stakeholders who have very different needs and very different under. Um, different, far different uh, messages will resonate. How do I do that? Well, I first really need to have empathy for them. So I really need to know that if you're an employer-based healthcare program coordinator, what do you care about? Or if you're a chief medical officer, what do you care about? If you're someone with type uh, prediabetes, what do you care about? It took me, uh, it was just, it required that intellectual curiosity again to, to recognize I knew very little. There were real experts that I needed to listen to and have deep empathy and understanding for. Um, in order to do a great job there uh, in, in multi-audience marketing. So I took the time to do that. And it was a good lesson to say, you know, you cannot market something you don't deeply understand. And it doesn't matter how technical or complicated it appears. You got to figure out a way to understand it um, and get that learning. So that was the big headline for me from Amada Health was, you know, everything is knowable. But as a marketer, you need the patience and person. You don't need to have all the answers, but you certainly need to know the questions to ask. And so I had to really lean on people to help me understand what were my blind spots. And how could I get quickly to um, to resolving them in order to do my job properly? Um, so, and look, that was also a startup. I was there from almost the ground floor of that company. And it was exciting to watch 
how we went from, you know, 30 people to 300 people to, you know, many, many more now and this company with zero dollars of revenue to suddenly hundreds of millions and and beyond now. And so that was a really good, um, you know, we had to do everything and I had to build a team from absolute scratch. Uh, and uh, so I think I got really sharp skills just being scrappy and and driving as quickly as I could because I really believed in the mission of the company. When you were building building your marketing department from nothing at Omada, what was the most important capability to build first and foremost? You know what? For the the I, as this is going to sound like a road answer, but obviously marketing is truly the blend of art and science. So I always say there's two important roles to hire at first, right? You need to build. I needed a creative counterpart. I needed so, and again, I think of myself as a creative in many ways, but I wanted a true creative director, a design leader, because. You know, companies like these, uh, not Omada, but like Omada, chronically underestimate the role that design can play in helping a brand break through, helping a platform break through. So I really wanted um, an amazing design leader who was really well um, educated in design thinking and could help bring that to life. So we hired a creative team, you know, uh, led by a wonderful woman named Jen Mayer, who was a creative director that I knew from IDEO, in fact, Mm -hmm. but who was able to shepherd and help build this incredible design team. Um, and then, and then the second one is always performance. And and the reason I say performance is, you know, uh, I think I was as interested in the data and the science as I was in the storytelling, uh, and, and the brand. And so I wanted to be able to show some quick wins early and show that we were being rigorous and how we were spending money and how we were tracking how that money came back into the business so that I could earn the right to get more and do more things and more breakthroughs. So I always say there's never one hire in marketing by definition. You need to have your art and science mm-hmm. team coming in together and thinking of themselves as as two sides of the exact same coin working in lockstep. So those are the two first hires I made. So you went to Athleta after that, mm-hmm. which was uh, owned by Gap That's and a right. crazy, crazy hot brand. What was the power learning from your time there? <sighs> wow. Well, first of all, I mean, it was just a completely different culture. So I went from startup, you know, uh, very small health tech brand to a very well-established company that had run, was running like a large machine. Um, And so at first, you know, the thing I found very disorienting about my time there was, you know, we would have meetings that would last three days, you know, or, or multi-hour meetings that, that, uh, you know, were just on the surface felt very inefficient to me and very like, wow, this seems like a weird approach to things. But then I learned, of course, in retail, this is a, you know, retail is a beast and it is really hard. You, you know, you have, you have a bit, you have this background too, that it is, this is, this is no joke. And there's, there's good reason for some of these, these mores. But I, but I also felt like I, I was able to challenge a little bit of the culture and get people away from, um, you know, these sort of endless, long, laborious, you know, strategy meetings and, and more into a build to think mode. And more into like, let's try something and see how it goes and and maybe behave, have a little bit more of that scrappy, that scrappy mentality. The other thing I will say is the the CEO, Nancy Green, I mean, she, I hadn't seen yet an example of such unapologetic female leadership in my life. And so it was really amazing to watch her operate, which um, she was just very fearless and very able to say, I don't like this. This isn't good enough. Try harder. And you know, it dawned on me watching her work that I hadn't seen examples of that from women all that often. And and I really admired her approach in many ways. Uh, and I took, you know, as I always do with leaders that, you know, with whom I work, I said, well, these are the things I'm going to take with me. Here are the things I won't. Um, but it was a real pleasure to see someone 
with her level of experience and the way she navigated very, very complicated organizations. So that was the big thing I took of, of, you know, what does it mean to be an empathic but unapologetic leader? And how do you work your way through that uh, in, in, a, in a very well-established brand? What's the takeaway from this unapologetic leadership from Nancy that you've carried forward? Um, the extreme importance of being extremely, of being direct. And that you can certainly do that in a way that doesn't decimate your team. And, and that's your job. But how selfish it is to hold feedback back. and. I've learned that at Pinterest too, you know, and I certainly that, you know, the, one of the co-founders, Evan Sharp at Pinterest really reinforces to me, which is when you don't give feedback, you're prioritizing your own discomfort over someone else's growth and realizing how, especially as a female leader, I think you certainly internalize this idea that you need to be liked first and foremost, and then hopefully you can be respected afterwards. Um, but, you know, seeing how wonderful it felt to get direct feedback. How wonderful, what a relief it feels like to give direct feedback uh, so that people hear it and know that you care enough about their success, that you're willing to have a difficult conversation because you're so invested in them. That really helped turn around um, what it meant to give feedback for me in my own mind, which, you know, I think traditionally you think of feedback as negative and something to avoid, but this really helped me. Nancy helped me see, um, and, and Evan Sharp as well, how selfish it was to withhold feedback, especially when it was hard feedback. That's, that's when you have to just lean right into it all the more. Um, so that was a big, that was a big learning for me in that role. I want to pause there because that's such a fundamental lesson for everyone who's listening to this podcast. I think about the leaders in my life who I took so much from, learned so much from their ability to be honest, human, caring, and direct. Yes. That combination is so helpful That's as right. an employee, and especially as you're younger, and you know, every time, all the time in your career, but especially when you're younger. That's right. Well, we we had the great pleasure of working um, recently with Seventy Two and Sunny, you know, a renowned ad agency, and they had this line that they used with each other that I that I also stole because I loved it so much. And they said, "Look, be hard on the work, be easy on each other." And I loved that as a notion, which is, and I wanted to carry that through with my team, which is we, let's be so hard on the work. You want to go after it, but be easy on the person doing the work, especially when it's a creative thing, because, you know, I've never understood this, like it's, it's professional. It's not personal. Well, no, I hope it's personal. I hope people are bringing their whole selves to work. And of course it's going to feel personal. It should, but how can you show that you were being really hard on the work? Uh, and still showing respect to the person who did that work. Um, so I really love that line. Hard on the work, easy on each other. Yeah, that's great. Now you're at Pinterest and you've been there two years and a few months. Yes. And I want to talk, obviously, in a bit more detail about Pinterest versus your other two CMO jobs. When you came into the job two years ago, I, I heard you say that a big part of your role was to make explicit the brand principles that you would live by. I'd like you to talk a bit about how you did that, and if you could, what are the principles, and how do you feel that's gone in the last two years, to come to those principles, have them broadly felt by everyone, and to activate them in your daily work yeah. across your thousands of employees? Well, a lot of this work had been underway just prior to me joining the company. And they'd done a wonderful job working with uh, 21st Century Brand in particular to really identify like, what what is the business that we're in? And I think originally, as is often the case with consumer tech, they took a very tech forward lens. You know, we're the visual discovery platform. 
And of course, every user of Pinterest said, no, you're not. You're the inspiration company. (laughs) You're where I go for inspiration. Uh, And so it seems so obvious now from the outside, but it may not be from the inside all the time. And then realizing like, look, we want to help. We want to bring everyone the inspiration to create a life they love. That is what Pinterest is ultimately about. And so having clarity on that basic, like, this is the business we're in. We're building the world's inspiration company. What needs to be true? for inspiration, for everyone to have equal access to inspiration and to know how to take action on it. You know, inspiration by definition is about creating the urgency to act. It's not a state of admiration. It's not just saying, I think, James, you know, I think you are amazing and cool. Unless I'm doing something in response, I'm not inspired by you. I'm just impressed by you, you know, mm-hmm. and and we really wanted to separate ourselves from social media where a lot of it is just about kind of being impressed with other people and actually kind of feeling bad about yourself. How do we become a company that's not about that? It's about, you know, it's the one place on the internet where you get to focus on yourself and you get to stand on the shoulders of giants and be supported and surprised and excited by other people's ideas. And then critically, critically, you get to build on those ideas yourself. You get to iterate on those ideas and then hopefully give the idea back to this brain trust, you know, of humanity's absolute best ideas. So, you know, internally, I think one of the jobs was helping people look Pinterest was uh, is is a very you know intellectual but modest humble culture in many ways and they weren't used to telling their own story. And so first I had to get people comfortable with the idea of hey we have a point of view we have something to say let's be clear on the things we want to talk about and why what matters to us. Um and then get comfortable with back to that old lesson being unapologetic about it. Will we lose some users? Sure, that's okay. That's okay. But the ones we gain are the ones that we really want. Um, and so a lot of it was about saying, let's figure out, you know, we, we wrote these brand principles. Um, and But it wasn't enough to say, you know, what drives me crazy about, you know, brand strategy often, as you know, it can end up, it's a beautiful deck and it ends up in someone's top drawer of their mm-hmm. desk. And so what we did is we said, like, look, let's take some of these principles and let's, use them as filters and springboards for ideation. That includes what new features we want to build. That includes experiences we want to create. That includes comms, marketing strategies. And so my approach was actually to bring the product team along and to bring the events team along and bring, you know, bring the ops and policy teams along to say, if if these were our principles, um, how might we X, Y, Z, you know, and, and all the new ideas that sprung from that was, were really exciting because by definition, they were on brand. And they were getting us closer and closer fulfilling our mission. Um, so for me, that was a really important exercise in helping people think of marketing not as the song and dance you do at the end, <laughs> but the yeah. foundational work you do so you know the business you're in and therefore the product you need to build and therefore the stories you've earned the right to tell uh, so that you're just telling the truth when you market rather than trying to weave a myth around who you wish you were. Mm-hmm. Now, you're the first CMO, which we've said many times. Why did the company, why did Pinterest decide they needed a CMO? Many companies have added them. Some have taken them away. So it's an interesting discussion about what is the role? Why do some companies choose to put it in place? Why did Pinterest make that choice? And you know how, how has the role changed since you came in? 
You know, it's funny because in consumer tech in particular, you know, the, the, the CMO has been sort of an uncomfortable role or it's felt that way. And part of it is because these companies have done so well without a CMO, right? They've grown organically in many right. cases. And so I think a lot of them had this feeling of we don't, you know, market is a marketing seemed almost like a, a dirty word. We don't need to market. We're just building an amazing product and people will come. And, you know, what's so amazing about Pinterest is, you know, that was true for some period of time, you know, amazing growth, and they continue to have amazing growth. But realizing, you know, uh, Evan and Ben, the the co-founders, you know, I think they got to the point where they said, you know, we need to be deliberate now about how we grow. And therefore, we want someone who can help us and we want a team that can help us use storytelling as a as a strategic as a strategic springboard for the rest of the things we're doing. So in many ways I think, you know, my audio background and others helped because it was very much marketing through a product design innovation lens. Uh it's not hard to launch a global campaign per se. It's not hard to do performance marketing uh that hits a certain LTV over CAC. The challenge is understanding how marketing can be a real um, partner to product to understand the white space in the market, so that so that the the company is growing in in the best possible way. And and I've been very fortunate in that the product leadership at Pinterest has been very open to inviting me to the table and to including me in these conversations. And I don't think that's true of a lot of consumer tech companies. I think the opposite is true, and that's why you see a lot of marketers exit is they just they don't feel like they in mm-hmm. fact they can't have a business impact. And because they're just, you know, they feel like they're tap dancing over to the side rather than being seen as an as a um, measurable lever of of growth and 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 with the ability to protect the long term interests of the company uh, and keeping keeping current with where the culture is moving. So that's what that's what Pinterest decided to do. But look, I still think it was a learning curve. It was is like, okay, now you've got me. Uh, now we got to figure out how to help the org understand the the role that marketing will play. And I really credit them both with trying to give me the space and a soft landing uh, to be invited to the table. Mm. You know, it's not enough just to get hired. You have to have someone help you once you're in the door. Sure. Tell us about that. You've been there going on two and a half years. How did you establish the role? And you're from the outside, so you had to establish yourself. Yes. So tell us your learning and coming in in a new position from outside I'm sure marketing was happening, but what did you do to start up and to get off to a great start? Well, so for me, first was trying to honor the team. Yes, marketing was happening, um, but you know we kind of joked, and and I and I and I said this with love. This was my feedback, which was like, look, we've been doing random acts of marketing up until now, and that's we have this beautiful, talented, ambitious, hungry team, but they weren't organized in the right way. They certainly didn't have any resources. Um, there, I don't know that they were as respected as they should have been. And a lot of the core functions of marketing actually been stripped away from the core marketing team over time. So I was surprised when I got there to find, you know, uh, performance marketing didn't sit under marketing and product marketing didn't sit under marketing and, uh, comms and PR didn't sit under marketing. You know, there were all these things that weren't on marketing. And I, I kind of had this moment that said, Wow, this is the either this is either the easiest or the worst marketing job in the world because none of the core functions of marketing sit there. And 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 what had happened is there just wasn't that um, probably there wasn't that history and leadership of uh, historically of understanding how you had to actually structure a 21st century marketing team. And and so and this is not to congratulate myself. I, d- I don't mean hope it doesn't sound immodest. It, I just realized this poor team hadn't been uh, supported in quite the right way, um, and and that we could quickly reorg, which we did. 
and then and then try to you know go back to the to the to the functional areas that had been pulled away and say hey can we partner with you and let me earn your trust so we can get it back because i promise you we can do a good job at this and we can free you up to do more uh, other things that are just as important and probably closer to your own uh, wheelhouse so again same thing as i did with omada health it, i hired a phenomenal head of performance marketing i had hired a phenomenal um ecd i hired you know, a head of creator, consumer, and business marketing, respectively. Like I got all the pieces in place, um, and then you know we set up, you know, what what our strategy was and the different work streams and what we were going to deliver. And we just started, you know, chewing our way through those and and then kind of showing that they worked. And not only they worked externally, but you know, internally, it was nice to feel pride. It was nice to say, oh, look, the thing that I built for Pinterest, they did this fun campaign to celebrate that feature and get more people to use it. And suddenly the engineers were like, oh, I want to, I want you to yeah. market my thing. And and so, so being able to show, show the internal team and, and that, look, there are obvious business reasons to do this, but there are internal people reasons to do it as well. And, and, and make sure that we're celebrating all the talent we have and the things we're doing in the building in the right way. Yeah. Andrea, where do you focus your time? You have lots going on in this company. So if you had to put your time into buckets, what would they be? Wow, what a great question. Um, I would say right now we have three important audiences that we care about. Obviously, first and foremost, our pinner audience, the users of the platform. The second audience, which is becoming increasingly important for us, is the creator audience. It's the people who are actually natively putting the new content, the new ideas, the new inspiration onto our platform. And then last, of course, our business community, the advertisers, the merchants who are either advertising or selling products on Pinterest. I think I split my time fairly evenly between those three audiences. Luckily, I now have three phenomenal leaders that are leading each of those segments. But my job is almost tying them together now. So I'm seeing what we're what our strategy is for pinners, but how that needs to overlap with the advertiser community, how that needs to overlap with the creator community, and really drawing a lot of these um, uh, associations together for the team, so we can you know one plus one can equal three. The other thing too is I'm I'm you know I think of myself truly as a whole brain CMO. So I'm I'm very data literate. I I, I do understand growth very deeply. But I love the creative. You know, I love to go mm -hmm. on the photo shoots. I love to write copy still from my own journalism days, a copywriter. And so I just love um, being able to make clear to teams, hey, this is a great strategy. Your creative isn't there yet. So don't throw out the strategy. Your strategy was right. Take another crack at the creative. Or this creative is beautiful, but it's taking us away from where we wanted to go. Like your strategy was wrong. And being very clear with people about, you know, where where the, the axis of change uh, is is most best concentrated in their efforts. So I I spend a lot of my time trying to redirect or trying to inspire or just trying to congratulate teams that are doing um, incredible work. But as you know, at this stage of leadership, a lot of it is about great people unleashing the talents that you have in the building and getting out of their way. Uh, a lot of the yeah. time, you went public in April two thousand nineteen, right? And and you were only in the job a few months when yes. that happened. <laughs> Yes. And and I remember I visited your offices a few years ago when I was writing my second book, and I was just I can still feel it the sense in your office yeah. of the love for the 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 pinners, yes. the love for hobbies and passions and interests, the curiosity. I mean, it was a really really energetic, fun, wonderful office yes. filled with customer stories. And so I just want you to talk a bit about you're now a public company. Mm. You have a $44 billion market cap. You have hundreds of millions of users. 
how are you keeping that that energy, that focus on the customer, that agility? What have you learned about keeping kind of the founder's mentality alive with a more complicated, larger business? Yes. You know, it's funny. A lot of people ask me that. Of course, when I joined, there was suddenly this whirlwind, which was like, okay, we've decided to IPO. And I obviously needed to be very deeply involved with that. And so that was a real, you know, the first six months were, were tough. It was a ton of work uh, to get that to happen. But I can tell you very truthfully, I don't think the culture has particularly changed. I mean, what's so amazing, you're right. The The reason I decided to join Pinterest was not just because of the people I met um, in my interview process, but Physically being in that building is a very special experience. It's not what you think of when you think of a consumer tech uh, company. It just felt very loving and humble and earnest. Homesy. Homesy almost, you know? And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so and so I that really appealed to me because I thought, well, this is is this an example of a consumer tech company where you can do well by doing good and that you can, you know, opt out of some of the things that, you know, you've been told you need to grow, but actually we've proven you don't. Um, so I think here's what the good news is. I think it helped Pinterest grow up in the right way, right? Which was like to say, look, we need to make sure we're really buttoned up about, about certain things. And that's going public invariably does that. Um, I think our challenge as a company is always going to have to be to make sure we continue to innovate, right? I think when you go public, there can be a tendency to say, Hey, how do we play not to lose versus play to win? And I think what's lovely now is that there's this real spirit of, hey, we want to play to win. It's important. The world needs us to be successful. We want to protect, you know, the last positive corner of the internet. We want to prove it. It it can really thrive. And certainly the last year, I think we've done that. The 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 platform's obviously grown incredibly well in the last year, and it's continuing to. And I just hope we can keep that momentum up, uh, not lose not lose uh, any of the pace that's been set now. You talked about innovation, keeping the innovation going. Any tips or tactics? your leadership team does to be sure that that stays front and center in the organization? Well, I think it's, it's, it's permission to fail at this point, you know, is look, we have such a wonderful team and they're so responsible and they're trying so hard to do the right thing at all times. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of joke, you know, it's like sometimes I'm in meetings and I was like, wow, this is what happens when, a you know, 10 valedictorians get together to talk something through, right? There, there's a lot of very, very thoughtful rigor in how the conversation goes and I think we still have to, you know, what I love now is how much emphasis is being placed on, you know, win or learn. You've got to just try some things and they can't be perfect and, and you can't see around every corner. So let's build to think, let's win or learn, and let's get some things out there and see how it goes. Um, put pinners first is the number one value. And I've actually mm-hmm. never seen Pinterest shy away from that. In fact, almost over-rotating on that idea in many ways. There's It's a constant drumbeat in the building. Like, is this good for pinners? If it's not, let's not do it. You know, is this good for pinners? Have they asked us for this? Do they want this? Will this, this will their, this help them create a life they love or take the, make it more complicated? You know, it, it's, I, I've never seen a company has, that has been so emphatic around keeping user centricity, heart and center of, of what we do. I met Ben Silberman years ago when you were really a very young company. And I asked him, you know, the classic question, you know, what worries you, what keeps you up at night? And he said, this is a beautiful answer for ev- every CEO in the world who's listening. He just said, I never, ever want to disappoint one pinner. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. That's the culture you want, right? That's a culture of growth and customer centricity and purpose. Yes. And he's, 
I mean, he is that way to his core, as is Evan Sharp, as as are many leaders there. You know, they've they've there is this feeling of we just want to do a great job and we want to do the right thing. And as you know, that gets hard. That can get hard. That can mm-hmm. and, and and everyone and we've made mistakes. Obviously, Pinterest has made a lot of mistakes, but um, but I don't think that has changed the core impulse of the team, which is let's just try to do the right thing. And when we can't, let's do the next best thing uh, as much as we can. So I, I do, I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Ben at all, but certainly um, the idea of disappointing anyone, Pinner's employees, especially yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that he feels that. Um, so, so I love that. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask one uh, big question before we move into the, the lightning round. And that is about purpose. And And you of all companies are one of the most purposeful in the world. You activate everything around your purpose of inspiration. You're customer-centric. Can you tell us a bit about what you've learned in building that culture, how the purpose has become even more compelling, how you measure it, how you build it into people's daily work? So what have been your lessons in in the Pinterest purpose journey? Well, what was so um interesting during COVID was that we finally got a very clear signal that our purpose was right. In other words, people were desperate for inspiration. It was a year where people needed it more than ever, where they needed Pinterest more than ever. And so being able to hear directly from Pinners to say, here's how you saved me in this moment, or here's how this changed me. And it can be small things, building confidence to prepare a meal where you haven't before or reimagining what your identity is. I mean, there's a lot of people who've really used Pinterest for some pretty amazing reasons. And so I think what helped in 2020 in particular was just seeing evidence of people who turned to us in a moment that felt very low for them and emerged it better. Um, And so that helped people understand in the building that we're not, we're not building a platform, you know, we're, we're celebrating an idea. And the idea very simply for me is that, first of all, inspiration matters and that anyone can inspire uh, and that a great idea can change everything uh, for whether it's in one person's life or whether it's in, you know, uh, how, a, how a country think is, thinks of itself. And so um, luckily, we had this very visceral, tangible experience of seeing how our engagement was changing during COVID and continuing to, to hold true. Um, and then also saying, look, when when things get rocky outside the building or inside the building, you actually need your purpose more than ever to lean on. It's mm-hmm. it's a really important, you know, um, walking stick, let's say, or north star, or just guiding light. Which is when when you suddenly can't see left or right anymore, and you're getting confused yourself, and you're not sure who to listen to. Just go back to that purpose, and make your decision by filtering it through that purpose. For us, that that has been the thing that helped stabilize. Um, the culture and the company, I think, in moments of, of real hardship where we said, okay, let's remember the business we're in here. You know, what is the real business we're in? And being able to say that out loud um, has helped. It's not just selling ads. You know, it's not selling clicks. Mm-hmm. That's not the business we're really in. Um, so so that's helped us a great deal. In my family, your platform is, has been used for weddings. It's used for baking. It's used for sewing. It's used for cooking. It's used for travel. And, and there's people in my family who are really, really all over your platform. I want you to talk a bit about who's using it in interesting ways. How has that, how has it really changed some people's lives, you know, during COVID and coming out of COVID? Sure. 
Um, well, there's lots of, so there's all the obvious ways you know about, right? So yes, you mentioned most of them, right? So home yeah. and DIY and fashion and beauty and health and um, yeah. exercise, all those great ways. But again, you know, the power of Pinterest is that you go there when you don't have an answer, right? You don't go there when you know exactly what you want to do or buy or try. You go there when you have maybe a kernel of an idea, but you need someone to get you out of your own echo chamber and open your aperture to what's possible so that you can take a more inspired step towards something. And so we've had these amazing cases. First of all, um, you know, there are tons of people. I mean, literally, we're, you know, 440 million, 450 million. I mean, we're, we're, we're knocking on half a billion people every month who use this platform. And within that, we have all these gorgeous stories. You know, people who said, like, one example I always think about um, was actually a, a Canadian uh, family whose, whose baby was born um, and they realized she couldn't use her legs. This baby was going to need to be in a wheelchair, but wheelchairs are built for three and four and five-year-olds. And they didn't want their baby sitting around for two or three years, not being able to move. And, and so they had to go on Pinterest and try to look up baby wheelchair. It doesn't exist. Well, what comes back? All sorts of interesting hacks and works around that other parents have tried. And this family designed this incredible, I mean, truly baby wheelchair out of an old bumbo seat, which is a, you know, a brand of seat that you would put a child in just to feed them applesauce. And they attached two bike wheels to the side. And all of a sudden you had this 12 month old baby wheeling herself around the front yard. And, and to me, like these little stories of saying, oh, they, they, again, if you believe that Pinterest is a repository of humanity's best ideas, and I do, you can go to it when no one has the idea, no one knows yet, and still find ways to get there, to find a great solution. Um, and so there's there's all these stories like that, that of people using it for these, I don't want to say off-label, it's not even an off-label <laughs> way, yeah. but these unexpected ways where you yeah. go, wow. Like um, The other thing too, you know, and I can speak personally to this is, you know, you realize so much of what you like is really just what people have told you is good. And so even when I was redoing my house and realizing like, oh, it turns out I'm not an XYZ, I'm an ABC, you know, instead, like you kind of realize I'm more than I thought I was uh, and I'm more eclectic than I thought I was. And I, and I love that these people took me on this journey through these ideas. So, so we just see what we're trying to, you know, we had this joke, this little campaign we ran last year called the board behind the blank, you know, insert anything in the blank, but all these amazing people were using Pinterest, even, you know, the, the television show Stranger Things, which I love, you know, the Duffer yeah. brothers used Pinterest to help storyboard and mood board what that landscape was going to look like, what the worldscape of Stranger Things was going to look like. And we hear from a lot of, you know, artists and creatives and That's celebrities. So cool. Yeah. How they're using Pinterest to just, again, get these great, diverse ideas to help inspire their thinking. Um, so we, we were sharing more and more of those stories in general through marketing. Yeah. Hey, I want to jump to the lightning round, and I have to start this lightning round with going back to reading. You know, we talked about your first year in college. Yes. What are you reading? What are you reading these days? Ooh, I've read two good books recently. So I've read uh, Unleashed by Dr. Francis Frey, uh, which is a Harvard Business School professor, and this is about exactly how do you get the most out of your team, uh, and how do you think about leadership differently than ever. And this was for me one of the most counterintuitive examples that I had seen. Of of what what it means to be a good leader and and how much you need to get out of the way to be a great leader. Uh, so I certainly recommend Unleashed by Dr. Frances Frey. She's phenomenal. I've had the pleasure to get to know her personally as well through my journy. And then you know it's funny. I read um, gosh, another name is slipping me. The the latest the book from from Netflix um, from Reed Hastings. I think it's yeah, called yeah. The No Rules Rules. I just yeah. finished reading that. And 
you know, being able to walk through some of the challenges. And again, what I think was so compelling about the Netflix stories were how counterintuitive their examples of or what they did, you know, so they would present a challenge in that book. You know, here's a challenge you faced. We had three options. And invariably, the direction they took was the one that seemed like the worst idea of the three of how they tackled the situation. And so really learning from, you know, sometimes the bravery required of leadership uh, is is an unsung force um, was a really good reminder to me. So those are two, you know, nonfiction books. I'm also really looking forward to, you know, there's a, a Stanford business school professor, uh, Jennifer Acker, who's who's about mm-hmm. to release, you probably know her uh, intimately, a book about the role of humor in leadership. Uh, and I can't wait to read that one too, because I think that's another superpower that's um, unsung, the, the, the role that reminding everyone that this is supposed to be fun. You know, this is not that serious in general. Uh, and how do we make sure that we're keeping some levity and humor and and joy in the working day? I'm really excited to look look looking forward to reading that book as well. I got about I received about ten books for Christmas for my daughter, so I'm I'm <laughs> plowing through those yes. this winter oh, and a mix of fiction and nonfiction. Yes, yeah. You know, another book I read recently, and, and this is a few years old, but someone on my team actually gave it to me uh, as part of a secret snowflake was uh, was educated. Uh, which was the story, uh, which, yep. you know, by, I think Tara Westover was the name of the author, but again, just such a brilliant, uh, such a brilliant, you know, showing how much you still can teach yourself and how much you can learn from life experiences, even if you don't have a traditional, uh, school yeah. background. Fantastic. Any other content that's compelling to you? You talked about stranger things, anything you're watching or listening to <sighs> beyond the books you mentioned? Oh, wow. I mean, like everyone, I en- I tend to go to bed watching something that I've seen on Netflix. And of course, nothing is, nothing's, now it's all blurring together, you know, all the things I've watched uh, recently. You know, I'll tell you one thing I love watching with my kids is uh, Mark Rober is a, as a, creator on YouTube who publishes, I'm sure you've heard of him, publishes, you know, STEM related, you know, physics yeah. kind of uh, lessons. And it's one of the few shows that, you know, I have three children, big variety in age, elementary, middle school and high school, you know, and a partner, a husband, and we all want to watch it together. We all can get something from it. And so for me, I just think, wow, any content that makes, you know, it's it's the high school physics teacher I always wish I had, you know, and I always talk about it, even at Pinterest about an example of like, look, this is great content that you know, anyone would want to watch. And it's a topic that most of us didn't think we were interested in. And now we all really are. And it's just, for me, it's just such a masterclass and how to, how to share your obvious joy in a, of a topic in a yeah. way that teaches and is compelling and is funny at the same time. I think he does a wonderful job. Yeah. Netflix's series nailed it, you know, which is kind of a play on you guys. <laughs> yes. Is that a good thing? You know what's funny? I, I I don't want to be critical of the show. I don't love the show. I've seen it. But I'll tell you this. You know, I think Pinterest, what I would love to do this year, we need to do a better job of celebrating, you know, the quote unquote Pinterest fail, because that's where the magic of the brand lies. The amount of people, you know, we, you have an ability on Pinterest to upload your version of something to try. And, yep. and I said to my team, I was like, can we do our Pinterest fail awards, please? Because the point is not to be perfect actually, there's something so beautiful in this brand of people trying things. And even if you fail at it, it's just such a glorious testament to humanity's desire to try and to give it a shot. And so for me, I'd love us to have, you know, the Pinterest fail awards and really celebrate uh, all the pinners who are giving it their best shot, no matter what. I love that idea. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I mean, the the Great British Baking Show, which is like 
crazy popular. That's all about failure. Completely, completely. And, you know, there's so much wonderful lessons and things you learn and then triumphs that come out of failure as well. And, you know, I don't think we've done a great job of, of telling those stories yet. And I'd love to do that in 2021. The greatest inspiration in your life. Uh, I hate to say, you know, I, I think it sounds so, so obvious, but yeah, of course, my children are, are the greatest inspiration for me. And, and it's such a pleasure to, to watch them grow and, and to get to parent them. And, um, and they're just a constant living, breathing reminder of what I actually care about. And so when things start to go wrong there, that means they're going wrong everywhere for me. So, so for me, I really lean on my relationship with them and, and how they're evolving and, and the choices they're making as a reflection of of, um, you know, my ability to, to stay connected. Uh, so they remain my greatest source of inspiration. I will give you the last word. Any question for me? Well, I'm, my real question for you is, look, you've, you've gone from having one of the highest profile CMO jobs in the world, uh, certainly one of the most demanding. And now it seems like you're living life a little bit more on your terms. What are the upsides and what are the downsides to the transition you've made in the last few years? Oh, wow. Uh, we could do a podcast on that. <laughs> I would say there, I, I, I wouldn't say there are any material downsides, at least for me personally. I love my career at PNG, but I love even more what I'm doing now. Mm. The upsides are to spend a high percentage of my time on things I'm really, really passionate about. And a lot of people, when I was leaving PNG, said people I respected who I went to see said. Make sure you, you build a life around things you really care about and are passionate about, and you will be happy. And I've kept that in front of me every day and every week. That's incredible. Can I ask one follow-up question to that? Sure. Would that have been possible when you were in, in you know, the number one seat before? Is it possible to do that while you're still working uh, for someone else? It's possible to a degree, but not as much as I want it. You know, any, any senior role in a big company has stuff and it's necessary stuff and it's important stuff, but it's some of the stuff that I didn't want to do anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. But I, I think I, I could do it as well at P&G as I could have done anywhere, but I just wanted a greater degree of freedom. Fantastic. When I visited Maurice Levy and told him I was leaving P&G, he was running publicist at the time. He said to me, Jim, the greatest gift in life is freedom. And you've certainly earned that. Go for it. That's right. That's right. Good for you. Well, look, I hope to follow in your footsteps one day. I'm not there yet, but uh, but you're an inspiration as well. So thank you very much for inviting me on this for this conversation. Andrea, it's been it's been wonderful. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you. That was my conversation with Andrea Mallard. Three takeaways to consider putting into practice in your life. First, the importance of the art and science of business and of marketing. You have to love data, love the insights that come from data and you need to be a storyteller. Andrea talked about the first thing she did in her CMO jobs was make sure they had the art and the science. Second, the importance of being a journalist. Journalists are curious. Journalists ask questions. Journalists look for trends. Journalists synthesize things. Andrea was a journalist as her first job out of college. I was too. She uses those skills in her daily work. Third, the importance of honest feedback to people. That's something we hear in every marketing or leadership lecture, but she talked about how we're often not comfortable with giving people honest feedback, and in doing that, we are doing a disservice to our employees in their personal growth. Three powerful lessons to think about putting into practice in your life. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. 
If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.